Welcome everybody to Bible study. Glad you've decided to join us. We are continuing our study series entitled Living from the New Heart, part eight, if you can believe it. Tonight we're talking about having the perfect perspective. You know, this whole uh, series can be summed up in this one simple phrase, and that is that the Christian life is a reliance on Christ. It's a reliance on his perfect life, his perfect blood, sacrifice, his perfect death, um, and his perfect resurrection, and the perfect salvation that that has purchased. We rely on that. Our striving is over. Uh, we can trust. We can rely on the finished work of Christ. We're not trying anymore. The trying has been accomplished. And in fact, it wasn't um, just by trial and error that it was accomplished. Christ came to fulfill the will of the Father, to live the perfect life, to die a sinner's death, your death, my death, and be raised so that we could be raised to newness of life with him. It didn't happen by accident. It happened on purpose. And when Jesus said in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The Father said there is not. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. You're the reward of his suffering. He went through great agony to purchase you. And he purchased all of you. And uh, that's why we can rely on it. It's, it's a good salvation. It's a perfect salvation. And now tonight we want to look at that salvation from the perfect perspective, from the perfect angle. Do you know that the angle at which you look at something changes the way you see it? And once you see it that way, you can never unsee it. Mom and Dad told me once about a statue that they would walk past on their daily walk. They would see it just about every day that they walked this route. And just about every day they looked at it confused, wondering what this statue was. They could tell that it was uh, meaningful to the homeowner because it was carved into the stump of a tree that had grown in their front lawn but had been cut down. And so this statue was carved into this tree stump. So it was obviously there on purpose and it was very meaningful to the owner of the home. But they couldn't figure out what it was. Until one day, the owner of the home was out mowing the lawn, and my dad got up the courage to ask him, what is that? And he said, it's an elephant. And as soon as he said it's an elephant, they looked at it and could see an elephant. It's a, it was an elephant on its hind legs with its arms kind of like this and its trunk like up in the air, so they, they couldn't tell what it was before but after they were told they could see it and every day after that when they walked past that statue they knew it was an elephant they couldn't unsee it 
They couldn't see it the way they saw it before. Before it was confusing, uh, but now that they were told what it was and looked at it from the right perspective, they couldn't unsee it. Well, when we see the gospel that way, when we see it for what it truly is, when we see it the way God intended it, we can't unsee it. That's why oftentimes in this study, we say things like, maybe those people didn't hear the full gospel yet. Maybe those people that continue to struggle with sin or not just struggle with it, but seem to celebrate it and want to get better at it, but also think that they're, you know, saved and, and born again. Sometimes we say things like, well, maybe they haven't heard the full gospel yet. Maybe they haven't seen it from the right perspective yet. There's a lot of perspectives that people take on the gospel, but there is only one right one. There's only one. That's what Paul said, right? Stick to that which you heard at first. If anyone comes, an angel of God, uh, even if I come back to you with something different than you heard at first, don't believe it. Hold to that which you heard at first. There's only one gospel. Everything else is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so we want to be people who see the gospel for what it is. And God has gone through great efforts to explain the gospel to us. When you see... I'll stop there for a second. The gospel is amazing. Um, if this is all it was, it would be more than we deserve. But sometimes people just see the gospel as, okay, my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven when I die. That the payoff or the benefit of the gospel only kicks in later, like after you die. But there is something for us right now. Um, and that something is a life of quiet stillness in Christ. And I use the word quiet stillness in quotations because uh, when Romans says that there remains a rest for the people of God, he says that there remains a Sabbath, there remains a quiet stillness for the people of God. The gospel is a quiet stillness right now. Have you ever experienced quiet stillness? Like just the perfect moment? I think I mentioned this in a sermon not too long ago, but I'll remind you. Back at the beginning of summer, my brother and his wife and Trina and I we went on a backcountry camping trip uh, in Algonquin Park. We had to paddle into our site, about a 45-minute paddle. There was no one around. No uh, traffic could be heard. The nearest path was kilometers away. And uh, we set up our hammocks around the fire pit in the afternoon. It was early summer, so it was warm, but it wasn't hot. 
It was late enough that uh, the black fly, black fly season was over so we could kind of just sit out and enjoy the, the outdoors. And so four of us had our hammocks and trees nearby and we were just swinging and the breeze blowing and the water lapping on the rocks and the birds and the breeze blowing through the leaves. And almost simultaneously, we all blurted out, this is a perfect moment. Like, it was just amazing. You couldn't recreate it if you tried. It just happened, and it was awesome. When I think of quiet stillness, that's where I go. That's what I think of. My life in Christ is this quiet stillness, this perfect moment. Listen, life's not perfect. Life's awful at times. The world is a mess. Everything around our soul seems to be giving way, but Christ is our solid rock. He's our hope and stay. We can, we can build our lives on him and, and we can enjoy quiet stillness now. Uh, when we see the Christian life as quiet stillness in Christ because of his finished work, our fears are stilled. Our strivings cease and we can truly rest in the freedom for which we have been set free. Galatians 5. That's why Christ came. He came to set you free. He came to set you free from your bondage to sin. Yes. And he also came to set you free from striving. To set you free from working. To set you free from guilt and shame so that you can live the life you were always intended to live. So let's talk about the four angles that we can look at, or four angles from which we can look at the Christian faith, the Christian life. I tried to get my grammar right there. Four angles from which we can look. Angle number one. Angle number one. You see, as I said before, the gospel is a lot of things to a lot of people. The Christian life is a lot of things to a lot of people. You've heard lots of stuff over the years, things you've had to learn and unlearn. Uh, a lot of times we were taught things that were blatant errors or blatant misunderstandings of scripture or intentional misunderstandings and sometimes we were taught in ignorance by people who had good intentions but be that as it may uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at the Christian life and some people think the Christian life is all about getting closer to God and doing whatever it takes to get closer to God and if you look at Christianity from that angle, you're going to spend the rest of, your, rest of your life striving to get closer to someone you can't get any closer to. What can believers do to get closer to God? Well, the answer is nothing. You can do nothing to get closer to God. Look at that scripture reference, 1 Corinthians 6 17. Paul writes, But he who is joined 
to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Um, in the previous verse, Paul references the two shall become one flesh, referencing uh, the, the institution of marriage and how God uh, joins two people together. And then he says, it's the same way in your relationship with Christ. You have been joined to the Lord and you are one spirit with him. You can't do anything to get closer than bonded, connected, fused, joined. You can't get any closer than one spirit with. Now the next verse tells us that because we are one spirit, there are things that we should flee. There are things that we should avoid. Uh, there are temptations that we should resist because we are close. But resisting those things doesn't make us closer. We're already close. And because we're close, we do certain things. We avoid certain things. We resist temptation. But resisting those things, avoiding those things, doesn't make us closer because we're already as close as we're ever going to be. Now, when believers say things, and I say this all the time, and I pray this prayer, when believers say, I want to be close to God, this is what I think they really mean, because it's what I really mean. I want to fill my mind with God's truth so that I know nothing but him. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians just a few chapters earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Look at what he says. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. When I say, God, I want to be close to you. Or when I affirm the truth of God's word that Christ is as close as the mention of his name or that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother and I say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want to be near you. I want a closer walk with you. What we're really saying, what we really mean, is that we want our mind to be filled with God's truth and nothing else. We want to, uh, to focus wholly and completely on him. You see, in this life, we're tempted to look to the left or to look to the right. We're tempted to look all around us. But the Bible encourages us to look to Jesus, to stay focused on him. And when we say, Lord, I want to be close to you, what we're saying is I want to be distant from everything and anything else that keeps me from walking in sync with you and accomplishing your will and purpose for my life. Why do you read the Bible? You read the Bible so that you get to know the author. The more you get to know God, the more you will get to know your perfect closeness to him. So that's another thing that we are saying when we say, God, I want to be close to you, or I want a closer walk with you. We're really saying, God, we want to know 
that we know that we know just how close we really are. We want to be convinced of it because we have an accuser, remember? Accusing us night and day, telling us that we're far from God and that God is far from us because we messed up again. We have an accuser that tells us they're close, but you're not close. And any other number of lies that you and I have heard from the enemy over the years. And so when we sing a hymn like Just a Closer Walk with Thee or sing a chorus like I want to be close to you, what we are really saying is, God, teach us just how close we really are. See the gospel from that angle. Once you see it like that, you won't unsee it. Once you see it like that, when the enemy comes to you and tells you that because you did that, you're far off. Because you did that, God's abandoned you. Because you keep struggling in this area or keep making the same mistake that you've drifted, you can say, Satan, get behind me. I know that I am one spirit with Christ. Here's the deal. You didn't make yourself one spirit with Christ. He made you one spirit with him. You see, if we were the ones doing it, it would be imperfect and therefore could fail. But Christ has made us one with him, so it's a perfect oneness that cannot fail. Here's another angle uh, that some people see the Christian life from, another perspective. They see the Christian life as constantly trying to get clean and stay clean. They have this idea of the gospel and this idea of forgiveness that says God forgave you up until the moment you got saved. And then you have to live a life of ongoing confession. Okay? It, it makes for... Um, it makes for... What, what's the word here? I want to be careful. It helps you, like lord over people and control them when you tell them you need to come to a a wooden booth and stand on the other side of a dark screen and confess your sins to another man who can absolve you right but that's not what the gospel says the gospel says that when you confess one time and believe ongoing, right, that you are forgiven, that you are washed, that you are perfected by one offering for all time, that all your sins are forgiven. You're not looking for absolution day after day, week after week, year after year. You've been absolved. Your sin record is erased. And God's not bringing it up again. All your sins have been thrown into the sea of his forgetfulness. They're gone. And you say, yeah, but Pastor Matt, I've committed some big ones. Yeah, but the blood of Jesus washes them all. They're gone. They're gone. You're completely clean. 
What can a believer do to get cleaner? Well, the answer, again, is nothing. You can't get cleaner than perfectly clean. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. We have read this passage several times in this series. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, in the previous verses, the Hebrew writer refers to the old covenant priests. In verse 11, if you want to look at it. They had to daily stand and repeatedly offer the same sacrifices which could never take away sin. But Christ offered himself one time and sat down. And so by his single offering, he has perfected for all time, forever, those who are being sanctified, those who are coming to God and being set apart for God. That's what sanctified is. You're set apart for God, for his purpose. He has perfected those people for all time. If you've been washed by the cleansing agent of Christ's blood, you're completely washed. To be perfectly cleansed for all time means that you will never get more clean and you will never get dirty again. You can't get any more clean than that. That's the great thing about the cleansing agent. It also prevents stains. It cleans what was on the garment before and prevents anything else from getting on it. That's why Paul said when Christ returns, he will be coming for a glorious church without stains. There'll be no wrinkles in their garments, but they'll be blood-washed garments, white as snow, pure, perfect. Like I said before about getting closer, you didn't make yourself clean. Christ made you clean. If you made yourself clean, if I made myself clean, it would be imperfect, and we'd get dirty again. But Christ made us clean, perfectly clean, and we won't get dirty again. Let's talk about struggling with sin again for a moment. Because there's always what if questions when we talk like this. So I try to answer them as we go. Think about living your life on two different planes. The horizontal plane and the vertical plane. And we know that heaven is not necessarily up. Okay, but oftentimes that's how we can... Uh, uh, comprehend it or apprehend it that that our relationship with God is vertical it's from heaven to earth and then we have horizontal relationships with one another and uh, with the world around us so believers struggle with sin on this horizontal plane and because we struggle with sin we have been uh, told ways to overcome one of those ways is to confess our sins one to another so James 5.16 says, we're not told as believers ever to confess our sins to God. We must confess our sins. We must confess that we are a sinner and Christ is the only Savior. We must. 
That's what Romans tells us. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. That must happen. Now as believers, we are asked to confess our sins one to another on this horizontal plane. Now, you can go ahead and confess your sins to God. I do that all the time. God, I hate that. That's not who I am. I hate when I react that way. Forgive me. I say those words, but I know that I'm completely forgiven. When I say, God, forgive me, and, and I don't want to do that again, and I hate it, it's actually me repenting. It's changing my mind about that sin. So again, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, forgive me, or confessing your sins to the Lord. As long as you understand your sins have been completely forgiven, you're not getting more forgiven. It's not progressive. It's permanent, once for all. It's not ongoing. We confess our sins one to another on the horizontal plane. We find friends we can trust and, and we confess our sins and we open up with one another so we can pray for each other. And the other thing we can do because we struggle with sin on a horizontal plane is we can gather like this, gather and be edified and uh, spurred on to good works. Uh, look at uh, Hebrews 10.23. So the Hebrew writer in chapter 10 just got done telling us, you've been perfected for all time. So if you hear that verse and you go, great, I'm perfected. I can go out from here and do whatever I want. You've missed the point because if you keep reading just a few more verses, verse 23 to 25, this is what you'll read. 23, let us hold fast to what? To the confession of our hope without wavering. Now I know... I don't want to put words in the, in the text here, but just to kind of go along with what we were talking about a moment ago. As believers, we're not holding fast to the confession of our sins over and over. We're holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider then how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting of ourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. All right, so we are called, as people who are completely forgiven, to spur one another on towards good works. You don't have to waste your time or spend your time trying to get cleaner because you can't get any cleaner. You can now spend your time encouraging your fellow believers toward love and good works. And when, as we all do, struggle in many ways, we can pray for one another and build one another up and hold one another accountable. So believers struggle with sin on a horizontal plane. However, believers do not struggle with sin on the vertical plane. We've talked about this many times. You don't struggle with sin from your heart. Your heart is brand new. Changed. It's transplanted. You have a brand new one. Your struggle with sin is not on the vertical plane. 
Because you struggle with sin, you're not falling in and out of fellowship with God based on your sins. Our perfect present cleansing in the blood of Christ is permanent. I've said it before, but the notes say it, so I'll reiterate it. The record of sin debt is cleared. We're always in perfect fellowship with God through the sacrifice of Christ. When we sin while in fellowship with God, it takes the fun out of it. And that's the point. That's why God keeps you in fellowship with him when you sin. That's why he doesn't cast you off or turn his face away like he did in the Old Testament. Remember, Israel disobeyed and God turned away. Then they obeyed and he turned back. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it's different. God's face is always toward us. He's always watching. He's always with us. We're always in fellowship with him. When we sin while in fellowship with Christ, it takes the fun out of it, and that's the point. Um, Trina and I were talking about this uh, the other day. And just, you know, we were talking about raising teenagers or a teenager and preteens and, and the influences and the things they see on, on social media and on YouTube and, and other things, the shows they watch. And we were like, it's so easy for kids, if parents aren't paying attention, to be influenced by those things because a lot of times they watch those things in the privacy of their own room with their door closed. And you don't know exactly what they're watching. And uh, we talked about how when we were growing up, we couldn't get away with watching any of that kind of stuff because we had to watch TV in the living room. And mom and dad were in the house walking through the living room. Mom was vacuuming. Dad was in the kitchen baking bread. They were right there. They could see it all, hear it all. We couldn't get away with it the same way. And so you can think of it like that. Satan wants us to think that when we sin, God sets us off to the side. He pushes us away. Get over there. Get, you know when we say to our kids, like, go to your room? Because I can't look at you right now. And they run upstairs and slam the door. Never happened in my house. I don't know what, I'm talking from total speculation. God's not doing that, right? He's not saying, hey, get away from me. In fact, when he does that, I feel like he pulls us closer. So we realize, yet again, that is not who I am. I am not that sin. I am not a sinner. I'm not defined by that sin. It's no fun. It, it, it looked fun for a moment. It felt good for a minute. But now that it's over, it's awful. And God says, see, that's not who you are now. And we celebrate the fact that we are clean and close no matter what. Never hesitate to celebrate how clean and close you are. Satan wants you to, uh, to focus on your sin and obsess on your sin. But I want you to focus on your Savior. Obsess on him. If you're going to be obsessed with something, be obsessed with Jesus. Celebrate Jesus. Celebrate his gospel. Celebrate his grace. Okay, quickly, uh, two other angles that many people see the Christian life from. Some people see the Christian life as an endeavor of guarding your heart or 
keeping your heart right or keeping your heart soft. That somehow we got to do something with this new heart to keep it. Your soft new heart, Ezekiel called it a heart of flesh, compared to the heart of stone that you used to have. Your soft new heart doesn't get hardened when you have a prolonged struggle with sin. Can hearts get hardened? Yeah. All of us are born with a, a heart desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? As long as that heart is in us, before salvation, it is getting harder and harder and harder. But our new soft heart doesn't get hardened. Remember, the struggle with sin now as a believer is in the mind, not the heart. That's where the battlefield is. Battles in the mind. The heart has been won. It's been changed. There's a new law written on it. That new heart can do nothing but be obedient to the standard. Your mind, however, unfortunately, until we get home, we'll always have it. Now, it's being transformed. And the the more it's transformed, the better off we'll be in this life. But the struggle is in the mind. I've mentioned it before. I'll say it again. A lot of times we have it backwards, right? People say, I need to get this gospel from here to here. It's the other way around. The gospel is all about the heart. You need to get it from your heart to your head. You need to tell yourself, convince yourself. You need to see it from the right perspective. Your heart's been fixed. You can't fix it. You can't keep it. You can't even guard it. What happens, though, when we have a prolonged struggle with sin? What happens when we have a prolonged period of struggle with sin? What is happening is that our mind and our members are getting stuck in old patterns and pathways. In this series, we talked about how the things of this world are known as the old patterns and pathways that we used to live by. We used to live by old patterns, old reactions, old habits, old places we used to go, old things we used to do. When we have a long period of struggle with sin, our minds are getting stuck in old patterns and pathways. They're getting stuck in a rut. The, the heart is not getting harder. The mind is getting stuck. Paul instructs the Colossians how to break this pattern of behavior. Let's turn there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Now remember, the Colossians are Christians. They're believers. Paul's writing to believers. Of course, there's unbelievers uh, in the congregation when this letter is being read, but uh, here he's addressing the believers and he's telling them how to break old patterns because he says sometimes you're going to get stuck in them, okay? 
you're going to be tempted in the previous chapter. He talks about you're going to be tempted to adopt the world's pattern. People are going to try to disqualify you because you're not doing it right. You know, if you, you read the previous verses. Um, and here he says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay? So there's an if. This, audience, or this, this letter is being read to a, a diverse audience of believers and unbelievers. And so here Paul is addressing the believers who have been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Which means that believers can set their minds on the things that are on earth. And we know a lot of believers that are doing that. And we can recognize it because it takes one to know one. We've done that too. We've been guilty of that. Setting our mind on the things of earth. But he tells us, set your mind on the things above. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Another way to say you're close to God. You're hidden in him. When Christ, who is your life, not part of your life, not number one on a list of priorities, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. And he goes on to list all kinds of things that can be earthly in a believer who has been raised with Christ. Because see, we don't have our old nature, but we live in this fallen world. And the power of sin is all around us. And temptation comes to all of us. And so we are to put to death that which is earthly in us. We're not dying every day. We died. But daily we can put to death that which is earthly in us. But that doesn't mean we're fixing our heart. It means we're setting our minds. We're setting our minds. I want to talk about guarding your heart just for a moment. I know we're coming to the end and you're so, you're so attentive. Thank you so much. I'm going to talk about guarding your heart for a moment. The phrase is used twice in Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, Solomon says, guard your heart above all. Um, yes. All those great interpretations. Yes. Proverbs 3, 14. Sword drill? Four twenty-three. Solomon tells his son, guard your heart. In the Old Testament, you had to guard your heart because, what does it say, Julius? So in the Old Covenant, uh, the scriptures admonish us to guard our hearts. 
Everything comes out of it. Jesus even said, out of, the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything comes out of it. In the New Testament, we're not told to guard our heart. We're told to let the peace of God do it. Because the issue of the heart is already settled. And God guards it for us. He protects it. See, no matter how, no matter how good someone in the Old Covenant was at law-keeping, they still kept the law with a corrupt heart, with a heart that was desperately wicked and deceitful. Who could know it? It wasn't until Christ died and rose again and we were born again with a new heart, with a new law, that we could be obedient to the standard from the heart, from a pure heart. All right, that was just a side note I wanted to bring up. Finally, quickly, and then I want to have some time for questions or comments. Uh, the fourth angle that you can see the Christian life from is this angle of constantly trying to feel more. Right? To experience more, feel more. And I, I would focus more on feelings even than experiences. Experiences are great. Uh, and feelings are great too. But God never calls us to feel. He calls us to know. John often says this, I'm writing that you may know. Never feel. I was looking up the word, I just looked up the word feel in uh, the concordance, my online concordance this, this afternoon. Um, I mean, this is not, like, this is not really in-depth stuff, okay? It's not like big word study, but I just looked up the word feel. It appears five times in the New Testament, and four of the five times, it, it just references like how Paul and the apostles feel about the saints at a particular church. He says things like, you know, we feel joy when we consider how you're coming to faith. Like things like that. Like I'm paraphrasing. The word feeling doesn't ever really show up in reference to feeling saved or feeling uh, forgiven or feeling victorious. Uh, we just are. We are told that we are. We are told that we are saved. We're told that we're forgiven. We're told that we're victorious, more than overcomers. We're told that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We're told these things that we might know them. We're never called to feel them. Now, can we feel them? Yeah, I've felt them all the time. You have too. Feelings aren't bad. The problem with feelings as humans is that they're all over the place. And those who obsess on their feelings deprive themselves of the contentment and knowing that Christ is enough. Colossians 2.18 Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. 
The word sensuous there has to do with our feelings and that which we can sense and experience. Paul reminds us not to get puffed up without reason by things that we experience and things that we sense. You can sense real things, experience real things, feel real things, yes. Don't think I'm saying anything other than that. But we have to be careful not to obsess on that and chase after feelings and experiences. Christ is our sufficiency, not our most recent experience. Though we can feel excited about and experience what we know, the feelings and the experiences don't make us complete. We are only complete in Christ. So some people will tell you, listen, you got to experience this or that because until you do, man, you just haven't, you haven't felt how amazing it is. You haven't, you haven't been fully saved. You don't, you don't know what you're missing. You're missing out, you know? We've had people say, listen, make sure you guard your heart. Make sure you guard your heart because, you know, uh, God kind of got it like prepared, like got it good enough, but you got you to get it the rest of the way. Or some people will tell you, Make sure you get clean and stay clean. Keep yourself clean. Keep confessing and keep getting more forgiven. And some people will tell you, you got to get close to God. Just get closer to him. All of these angles, all these perspectives are imperfect perspectives. The perfect perspective on the gospel is that we are clean and close and we'll never get cleaner and we'll never get closer. The perfect perspective on the gospel is that our heart is perfected and it is guarded by the one who perfected it. And that though we can feel and experience things that are very real, we are complete in Christ, not in our experiences. So what do we do? What can you do? If the Christian life is not about getting closer or getting cleaner or guarding our heart or feeling and experiencing the next big thing, if the Christian life isn't about that and doing those things, what should we do? What can we do? Because we love the Lord and we want to do something. Well, here's a few things that should take you the rest of your life to, uh, to get real good at. First, let me say, don't get preoccupied with getting cleaner and closer. Stop guarding your heart, chasing feelings. All those efforts are futile. Instead, do this. Offer your body and mind to Jesus every day. Offer your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Be the hands and feet of God extended to the world around us. You can do this by walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, setting your mind on the things above, not on the things below. Loving others, loving fellow believers, caring for one another, providing for one another, finding a need and filling it. You can grow in your knowledge of the gospel. You know, just because you accepted the gospel 10, 20, 30 years ago, it still plays a huge part in your life. It shouldn't be something that gets old. In fact, what I love to do is find different and more compelling ways for me to convey the gospel and preach the gospel first to myself, and then to others who ask. 
I think that if we're serving the Lord for any length of time, our description and um, our gospel message should be more than Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven. Like that is true. And if that's all you ever heard and if that's what you accepted, you know, Jesus would say, like he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me. But if we've been on the road for a while, our, our description of the gospel and understanding of the gospel should get deeper and stronger and fuller. Mm, I love that. Here's something else you can do. You can always be thanking and praising God for all he is and all he's done. You can practice acting like who you really are. You can resist temptation. You can say yes to grace. You can share your faith. You can pray for others and encourage them. You can memorize scripture. You can seek God's presence. All of these strivings, all of these efforts are actually going to keep you in a life of quiet stillness. You can do all of these things, all of these works, and still live a life of quiet stillness. Still be in the Sabbath that remains for the people of God. You can still be at rest while doing all these wonderful things because the Holy Spirit lives in you to empower you to do them. Not in your own strength, but in His strength. Amen. Let it be so.